So I pulled him back and I actually stepped in. The first time I stepped in a drug deal for years. And I stepped in because I didn't want my crew to get in trouble. And that's how they got me. It is an amazing story of a real-life former Boston mob boss. Notorious Boston mobster Bobby Luisi Jr. ran a very lucrative cocaine drug trafficking ring. In 1998, he had a kind of religious epiphany when FBI agents arrested him for drug trafficking. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Today's guest is former Boston mob boss, Bobby Luisi Jr. This is a very special episode in a number of ways. First, coming on the heels of the episode with FBI Special Agent Michael McGowan, talking about how he went undercover to penetrate Luisi's crime family. It offers a unique and rare flip side perspective of an important FBI undercover operation. Secondly, being a former mob boss, Bobby Luisi is not a traditional hero. He was born into a career in Italian organized crime. His father was a made man. He grew up around gangsters in East Boston, and at age 12 was collecting money from vending machines from mobster Gennaro Anguiolo, underboss of the Raymond Patriarca crime family. As a young man, Bobby sought a different career, building houses and running a Chinese restaurant on Martha's Vineyard. But when the local housing market went belly up in the late 80s, he turned to a life he was familiar with, dealing drugs and building influence in East Boston. This was the early 90s when Boston was a mob battleground. Bobby was ruthless and determined to emerge on top. When he did, something totally unexpected happened that knocked him for a loop and literally forced him to confront his demons. All right, that's it. This is a good story, Ralph. We'll start to tell it. I grew up in the uh, North End in Boston, in Little Italy. And that was headquarters for Boston Lacoste and Nostra. The Angelo family was from there and, you know, most of the capos. So uh, my father was, uh, as a young guy, started with these guys. He, he was with the uh, Patriarca guys. So, um, but they got divorced. My mother and father got divorced. My mother moved to East Boston, remarried. My father remarried. So I grew up a lot in East Boston. But 11 years old, I went to work for Rome Vending Company that was owned by the Angelo family. And I worked for Ronnie Rome. And I started in there about 11, 12 years old. And, um, yeah. So I'd be at all the social clubs. I'd be meeting everybody. You know, you know, the wise guys, you're yeah, from sure. New York. You know how it is, my friend. I know how it is, yes. It, yes. it was wise guy ha- haven back then in the 70s, you know, uh-huh. so. And you're working the vending machine. You're resupplying the machines? Well, my main thing was uh, on Saturdays, I went out and I rolled the dime machines. They were the old gambling machines. You know, some of them in those days, they had four, or $500 of dimes in them. And I used to go in with the machine in the club and roll everything, you know. At, at 11, 12 years old, I was making 50 bucks a week. It was good. It was good. Yeah, sure. I'd say about, then I quit that job. I was working uh, in a bar room in East Boston. And uh, my father had a strip joint up on LaGrange Street. 
in the combat zone, we called it in Boston. It used to be bad up there years ago. Now it's more part of the entertainment center. And uh, he had a strip joint. So 13 years old, I used to have to go up there, take the train, go to the strip joint, pick up 25 for me and 25 for my sister. <laughs> I did this every week. Wow. So I used to go in the strip joint, and then I used to go in the back room with the girls while they were dressing, with my feet up, drinking uh, cranberry and uh, soda water. <laughs> you know, I loved it. I'm gonna lie, Ralph. You know? <laughs> and at that time, all the yeah. big shots were coming in there. All the guys from the North End, you know, all the wise guys that had a piece of it. You know, Rafi Chong, Johnny Chicardi, uh, Richie uh, Gambali. I mean, they were all in there. I grew up with these guys. Yeah. So you grew up 16, in this culture. I, yeah. Yeah. 16, I moved back in the North End with my father. And it was an everyday affair with them. We were hanging around with them in the Bellinopoly on Hanover Street. And I felt at that time they were starting to groom me a little, you know. Then, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to be a builder. At that time, so I was still working at carpentry. 20 years old, I got a builder's license. Um, 23, I got a state builder's license. I had two of them. Building condos and refurbishing buildings in Boston. And then I went to Martha's Vineyard at 84. I built maybe a 50, 100 homes down there. Some of my spec homes. And then the market crashed in the late 80s on the Cape. Cape Cod and I came back to Boston you know I put a gun in the back of my pants and I went on the street you know Ralph it was tough I came back with two kids at the time a minivan that they were repossessing I lost everything you know and I came back and I hit the street in 1990 okay okay you know? and your 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 dad was still in it at that point Oh, yeah, he was still in it. So how do things develop from there? You go back on the street, you meet, uh, run into guys that you know, they, they give you little jobs here and there, and how does that build? Well, I actually hit the streets running, Ralph. It wasn't like that. Um, I seen all the young guys were driving nice cars, wearing nice clothes, where they got this money from. They were selling drugs, most of them. So my first attempt was to start shaking them down for money and to learn the cocaine business. So I jumped off with that. From there, I opened up a gambler club in East Boston. That was my bigger club, and I had another little one in the North End. I opened up a bookmaking office. I mean, I did everything, you know, and uh, everything I grew up with I knew to do. Started loan shocking. Uh, when I was coming up, there was a war in Boston. It started in the 80s with Frankie Salemi when he took the family over, tried to. And the guys that I grew up in the North End, most of them were all away. So the streets were wide open. And there was actually four factions out the street. But I was with the Salemi faction, and anybody could see Frankie became the boss. You know, and uh, He took uh, over from Patriarca. The yep. Patriarca, yeah, okay. A lot of people got killed in the 90s. Um, I started getting more powerful, building my crew together. Um, had a falling out with a captain in the Patriarca family. So I knew I wasn't going to get, I was a Paul's man in the Patriarca family. My friend, uh, Mark Rossetti, who was a higher up in the family, proposed me in the early 90s. But I knew having to follow with the other couple, you know, uh, you only need one guy to knock you down, Ralph, in that life. You know, years ago so in New York, they used, to, yeah. they used to pass the name around New York to all the families. They don't do that no more, but it only takes 
It's one person to knock you down. So I reached out to New York and I reached out to uh, Philadelphia. And I ended up going down meeting uh, Ralph Natale, Jory Molino, Georgie Borghese. Got proposed in that family. And uh, they made me a couple. And in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. It was a couple in Philly. Now coming back to Boston with that title, now I'm a boss up in Boston. We strained out my crew. And now I got my crew and uh, running the North End and got my business fuller, fully running now. And now when you say you have your crew, how, how many people are we, are we talking about, Bobby? Um, there was going to be another meeting. Uh, I made seven in two meet, three, three in one meeting, four in the other. And there was another group that was coming in because I was building up my Dejean in Boston because I was going to have uh, my own family. That's what I was building up to. That's the agreement I made with Philadelphia. I'd stay with them for two years, then I'd break off, and then it would be the Luisi family in Boston. Okay. so They, they were called gonna... us that anyway because, you know, I had a big family and they're not done. So basically so. they're kind of like sponsoring you, getting you, giving you protection until you get rolling yourself with your own family in, in Boston. I really don't want to say, yeah, maybe in a way with Cousin Ostro, but I really didn't need their personal protection. I had my own thing up in Boston. So you it's know, like an associ- a them. sponsorship almost. Yeah, I needed their backing to do what I wanted to do, and they gave me that. There were great guys down there, Joey, Georgie, really good people down in Philly. But your father and your brother, as I understand, were still a Maybe with you, maybe without, not with you. It was going back and forth, right? Well, uh, uh, me and my father had a lot of differences. Uh, we really weren't together on the street. We did work together with a few things, but that relationship was, you know, crumbling. But uh, I didn't need my father either. He had his own thing. I had, I had a bigger crew. I had all the money. I had the power. My father was a big, tough guy his whole life. Bad guy, feared. Don't get me wrong. You know, but I just went off. I did my own thing. And at a certain point, it, things got violent between the two groups, correct? Well, when we were out there, there were three factions uh, out there that were with the old faction of the Patriarca family, the guys that I told you earlier with that were in prison. Uh, Anthony Spagnola, who's fucky, um, Bobby Carroza. And they were running these crews out of prison. So they were with them, and we were Frankie Salami. Excuse me. They called him a pseudo-boss. You know, I, I really don't think Frankie had the right to take that seat. But um, he was the guy at the time, and the, my close friends were with him. So that's why I ended up with him. And then there was a lot of violence between his group and the other branches of the Patriarca yes. family, correct? Yes. Okay, and you you got involved in that. You were affected by that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we were in a war. I was You're in the in midst of it. All right. Yeah. And at a certain point, um, your father attacked some of your people. Is that correct? Yes, he did. Okay. So can you can you tell us about that? Well, what happened, uh, uh, Vinny Perez was with me. He, he started me in the drug business. He had the car club with me. I love Vinny. He grew up with my family. You know, my father and I, we weren't getting along. And uh, my, I guess it was my brother Roman's cousin was in the North End shooting his mouth off. Vinny and Damien gave him a beating, you know, and that's where that 99 situation, which I'll explain, happened. So I had words with my father when that happened. My cousin Ricky Sauro called me and said, Barbara, let's straighten this out before it gets crazy. 
you know, I love my cousins, you know. And I told Vinny and Damien to go to the 99 restaurant in Charlestown. Well, I didn't know they were going there. I told them to stay out of the North End for a few days so uh, I could train this up with my cousin Ricky and squash this beef. Because my, my brother Roman was a murderer. He, you know, he killed several people. We know about that. They knew about that, and they were all afraid of Roman. And then what happens now, um, Vinny and Damien are in the 9980. They call me to come down and have lunch with them. I said, I can't. I have a meeting to go to, which I did. I guess at that point, my father, my brother, cousins walked into the 99. So Vinny calls me again. He said, uh, they're in here, Bobby. I said, well, did they see you? He said, no. So just go pay the bill, go to the side dorm and just get out of there. They're not going to do nothing. There's 200 people in there. But why Vinny was calling me, Damien was calling his father. Well, who, Damien Leo came is... down to the restaurant, and that's when the incident happened. They killed my father, my brother, my cousin Anthony, Sonny Pelosi, and uh, my cousin Ricky got shot. This was the early 1990s, with the death of ruthless mob boss Raymond Patriarca, who had controlled organized crime in New England since the 50s, and the recent arrest of his son, Raymond Patriarca Jr. Every ambitious wise guy in Boston was trying to pick up the pieces of the crime pie. There was the Saleme faction, the Portala faction, the Chiampi Romano faction, Whitey Bulger's group, and Bobby and his crew. Wise guys were conspiring, bullets were flying, and lots of blood was being spilled. In the beginning, Bobby, his father Bobby the Blade Luisi Sr., and his brother Roman were all on the same side. But in late 94, Bobby learned that his father and brother were trying to muscle him out of the North End, and the two sides of the family went to war. On November 7, 1995, three members of Bobby's crew entered the crowded 99 restaurant and pub in Charleston and saw Bobby's father, his brother Roman, and two of their associates eating lunch. An argument ensued, and shots were fired. Bobby's father, brother, and their two associates were killed. Known as the 99 Restaurant Massacre, this incident became an important part of mob history. My family didn't have guns on them. It wasn't a shootout. They were just assassinated there in a booth. And they happen to be assassinated by people that you're you're associated with. Yeah, well, Vinny was running with Damien uh, Clemente. Damien really wasn't with me. Or his father, uh, Vinny was with me. But Vinny was. And now Vinny got involved with the V for Damien. So, you know, my worries were, was really with Vinny, to be honest with you. Were you at the funeral? Did you go to the, your father's funeral and all that, or or, or was oh that yeah, too I was dangerous? at the wake. I stood at the coffin. You know, oh no, yeah, I was there um, for my family, and uh, no, I stood at the head of the coffin with his wife Tracy, my stepmother, and uh, no, we went through all the procedures. And as people came in, my uncle Tony was introducing them to me and saying, "Listen, Bobby's taking over now, so you gotta go see Bobby." It was a family thing; it was terrible, but there was a little business involved. You know, that must yeah. have been uh, very charged for your family, I would imagine. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, you know, I the hurt went out to my family. I, I just, it's just terrible what happened. That crushed everybody. You know, my grandfather, my grandmother was still alive at the time. 
Uh huh. Sad. You know? Yeah, very sad. Grandma Louise, he was alive. My aunts, this is terrible. So. And were they hostile towards you, or they were they were understanding, or they were divided? It was confusing for them. What my family? No, I mean I had really nothing to do with the '99. You know, but they, I guess they thought I did. I mean, when I was back on the street, uh, we were all together. It's when I went away, they heard stories that I had something to do with it. Right, I see. Okay. Agabish. Capish, capish. And then the family kind of pushed away from me. Okay. So you go through this terrible incident, uh, you bury your father and your brother, and then something unusual happens. Well, the, yeah, I was living on 2nd Street, and uh, I was taking a nap on my couch in my living room and the, the doorway was open to you know a wide open doorway you know how the apartments used to be <clears throat> and something wakes me up my father walks through the door and my brother roman and they're dead now there's no alcohol there's no nothing involved in this you know i see them walk through and they were leaning up against near the uh, tv and i just sat up you know and they walked, my son's room had the French doors. They walked through there and they both sat on my son's bed and were staring at me. And my father said to me, he has chains for you too. I took it as mean as Satan. So I jumped up, I swore. I says, I want the two of you out of my house right now. They stood up and they went out. And that was it. They got, I seen them stand up. They walked to the left, past the wall, and that was it. And they left the house. I sat up. I might have smoked a half a dozen cigarettes before uh, my <laughs> wife came back home and told her what happened. Yeah. Didn't see him anymore. Wow. Okay, so now after this, 95, this happens. I get the vision. I see them. Um, I know I'm not going to the Patriarca family. My friend, uh, Frank Ross, he passed away now. He actually did uh, work for me, if you know what I mean. Good guy. Solid guy. He passed away now, and um, he said, listen, I, I was in prison for years with Ralph Natale. He wants me to go down there. Go to Philly. Let's go meet Ralph. But before I did that, and, you know, people could look these names up, I was uh, very close friends with Jerry Quimet in Rhode Island. Uh, the Frenchman, they called him. And uh, he had his friend Gizzy come up from New York. They were Gambinos. Gizzy said, I'm going to go talk to them down there. You should come in our family. He went down to talk to Pete Gordy. This is around 96. Goes down, he talks to Pete. Pete said, tell Bobby, you know, a commission rules. Not that there was a commission. You know, we can't get involved in that. We're not going to get involved. All the New York guys wanted nothing to do with Boston because the war was going on. They had stepped back. Right. And uh, anyway, long story short, my next trip, I go down and meet Ralph Natale. Uh-huh. In I hit it off with Ralph. Yep. I ended up meeting Georgia Bergese, great guy. And shortly after that, I met Joey and the rest of the crew. Joey Merlino. And Joey Merlino. And uh, at that point, uh, Georgie proposed me into the family. By early 1997, the mob wars in Boston had finally settled down, and Bobby Luisi had emerged on top. But he still had a problem. In order to be officially inducted into La Cosa Nostra, in other words, to become a made man, Bobby needed a sponsor, and because of the ongoing enmity against him by made men in Boston, 
Bobby had to look for a patron in another city. First, he turned to Pete Gotti, brother of John Gotti, who ran the Gambino family in New York. But Gotti didn't want to get involved in the complicated politics of the Boston underworld. So Bobby approached skinny Joey Merlino, the mob boss of Philadelphia, who agreed to sponsor him in exchange for a piece of Bobby's action. Bobby Luisi and three of his associates were officially inducted into the Philadelphia mob in a secret ceremony held in early 1998. So I had to go through a ritual. I had to be a, a soldier first. They were strict with that. So I got made in Philly. I was a soldier for about six months. Then we started straightening my crew out. So after the incident with your father, you, you start building up your family in Boston. Yeah. Right? And you're building your crew and you're doing well, right? Things, yes. are, things are looking good. And your main business is drug dealing. Is that correct? Cocaine. Cocaine. The cocaine business financed everything else. Okay. The loan shock money, the bookmaking. Yeah. And what rough estimate, what were you making a month from cocaine? You know, that could range. You know, the way I was working, I was making uh, uh, 8000 a key. Okay. So if I sold 10 keys, I'd, I'd make like 40000 a week, 20, 60. It all ranged, Ralph. There was nothing. Okay. So you were getting cocaine from, uh, from the, the Colombians. Colombians? Okay. Yep. And then yep. you're cutting it and you're selling it on the street. Yes. And you're controlling the dealers throughout Boston. So it's like your territory. You don't sell there without coming to me, right? With some because, uh, you know, a lot of guys I grew up with. Yeah. Ralph. Okay. You know how we are. I didn't bother them. Yeah. You know, if they, you know, they were doing their thing. Right. And you left them I didn't bother everybody. Yeah. Okay. You know, but it did come to that point with, with a lot of them in the different neighborhoods. They wanted to hook up with me anyway, most of them. So it's just like a natural thing happens that you start gathering more and more, more and more people. Okay. All right. And now you're, 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 you're living the life. Can you describe that? What it's like to be uh, the boss of a city like that? It must be quite an amazing experience. Well, it it was great. The respect that you got, um, the restaurants that we frequent, you know, they would have tables for me, the nightclubs we would go to. I pull up on my car and five guys run out, want to park it because they know they're going to get a tip. The crowds opened up. We walked right in. It was like that everywhere. You know, it was really, it's like being a celebrity. That's the part of the life I enjoyed. Yeah. And you had a, you had a wife and, and children, but at night you're out. You're out at the clubs. This is part of the life, right? Yeah. yeah. What happened, Ralph, the more power that I got, I pulled back from that. I was starting to pull back. I was trying to do my business because I was really hot, too, going back and forth to Philly. They used to follow me down there. State police, FBI. So everybody's got their eyes <clears> on you. They see that you're yeah, emerging. Yeah. yeah, okay. And they're just looking so for... So I cut all that socializing down as much as I could. But more with my wife and children. I mean, I was still all doing things, Ralph. I had gomas. I'm not going to lie to you. But um, I calmed all that right, really right down because now I'm in a different position, Bo. So you got a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of yeah. responsibility. Okay. Exactly. So so now uh, tell us, you, you know, you, you had that incident with your father and your brother. Um, how do you resolve that in your head? I, I really couldn't. It stuck with me. 
you know, trying to figure out why I seen them, why they came to me. You know, I was I was a vile man. I was I was really bad, and I know that. You know, I, I had a callus over my heart. I didn't care about anybody. You know, it was all self, self, self. Except for my wife and kids and maybe my mother, I didn't care. It was all business. So I was ruthless in my own way like that. That didn't bother me. People getting killed, it didn't bother me. So I think, you know, I was at that point that maybe Satan thought, you know, he'd have an ave- avenue to me. Well, my father said, uh, he's got chains for you too. We grew up as Catholics believing what? We go to hell and we're chained down there, right? That's what I understood it to be. So you yeah. associated with the chains with, with, with hell, with purgatory? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Because I know it wasn't God. You know, and then as time progressed and things went on, this happened in uh, March of 98. Okay, so now I'm the boss. I got my crew. I got the seven guys made. I'm going to make another four guys. I'm a cop of the gene. I'm a boss up in Boston. Things are going great. Making money hand over fist. I'm over with the guys in the neighborhood, a friend of mine, one night in the north then, drinking. I don't know how I made it home. I remember I had the, it was the winter. I had the, well, you know, March up here is cold. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I got the windows open in the car to stay awake, and I got the stereo blaster. I had a beautiful three-bedroom condo. I get to the condo and um, get upstairs. The room's spinning, Ralph. But I had a guy, Tommy, with me, and I could say this because he passed away. And uh, I had uh, a 125, which is four and a half ounces of cocaine in the cabinet. I never allowed cocaine in my house. I was not a big cocaine user, but to give it to a May guy, I would give it to Tommy. He was my body guy and with me every day. So I would have one of my May guys drop it off in my crew, and then I hand it off. So now it's dizzy. I can't sniff cocaine because uh, I'm allergic to it, believe it or not. So what I used to do is bite it, chew on it with a glass of wine, go down. So I started doing this. I went in the stash. I started breaking it off. I was chewing it. Still drinking the wine, now I'm coming out of it. I feel great now. But now I'm buzzed up. Can't go to sleep. Right. And what you time know? is it? Three, maybe. So now I'm up. This is like a continuous thing. Grab the Coke, grab the wine, maybe open two bottles of wine, and I'm gone now. So my son happened to be sleeping on the couch in the living room. He fell asleep watching TV out there. My son's room had a nice black oak curtain. So the sun was starting to come up now. It's like 6 in the morning whatever, five, six in the morning. So I go in his room and I try to sleep. Now across from his bed, I bought him, in a, you know, the old computers, the big ones with the tower. And under the screen, he had a little gargoyle. So I'm lying there, Ralph, I'm facing the wall. I hear this big screech. I roll over. The gargoyle's at the end of the desk. It moved. It moved, the little metal, it screeched, and it moved by itself. I pop up, what the hell's going on? So now it's in the morning, now I go and I tell my wife, I wake her up. I said, honey, look at what just happened, right? <laughs> she knows I don't really do drugs. She said, were you drinking? I said, yeah, she said, you got the DTs, go to sleep, she told me. From that point on, um, things just started getting crazy in that room. I was over eight hours with that demon. And that's when things started getting crazy. The things started mimicking me. It brought up faces with their eyes closed of guys I killed. I had something to do with. I, I battled with this thing. 
for eight hours. I said, you're here. How come Jesus isn't here? He said, well, he's not coming. He told me. So I told the thing. I says, uh, I already have power. I have cities under me. I got money. I don't need you. I says, I'm staying with Jesus, I told him. Every time I mentioned Jesus' name, it will regress just by his name. So you're having this mental battle back and forth. Absolutely. With this thing. Absolutely. Yeah. With and this it's thing. basically telling you, come with me. Well, I, got you, you know already. what I keep saying? You're playing this playground as evil as I was. Now I got cocaine in my system. Now let me ask you, Bobby, at the time, do you go to church or, or not? I'll tell you what happened. I can't fight this thing. It, it won't leave the house. Pastor Lewis came, <laughs> childhood friend with my mother. He was the pastor of the church. My yeah. mother came, my sister, my brother, Carl. Yeah. Everything this thing touched, we threw out. We threw it in the dumpster. They did that. I took the host that night and accepted Jesus Christ in my heart. The experience with the demon shook Bobby to his core. Part of him knew he had to leave his life of crime, and another part of him was determined to press forward. During the visitation, Satan had described cocaine as his drug. So the next day, Bobby informed members of his crew that they weren't going to deal cocaine anymore. One of them, Sean Viteri, asked for an explanation as he sat in the living room of Bobby's condo. When Bobby told him that he thought he had been visited by Satan, Viteri laughed and said, Satan, are you crazy? I don't believe in that stuff. Seconds later, a videotape that had been sitting on top of the TV flew six feet and landed at Viteri's feet. The shocked mobster bolted to his feet and left. Now, Ralph, I got to find out, did I go nuts? How did this happen to me? Okay. There was a haunting after this for years, even in prison. And when I say haunting, they used to come to me. I used to see things. No drugs, no alcohol, no cocaine, nothing, you know. And uh, so that night I take the host. Except Jesus. Now I grabbed Tommy, who's my bodyguard, and we start going to church every Sunday because Tommy believed. Tommy's a born again Christian, praying in tongues, doing all that, you know? And uh, But I went. I went every week till I got arrested. I got arrested in June of 99. So, so Bobby, while this is happening to you, what's going on? I mean, What's going on with the guys around you? Like that, that some of them have, have heard or have witnessed it. They've all heard about it. Um, no, 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 they didn't all hear about it. Oh, okay. There was only a few that was privy to what was going on. I didn't tell everybody. And no one knew that me and Tommy were going to church. Yeah, okay. Didn't tell anybody. Only me oh, and Tommy. Oh, that was a secret. Yeah, It was okay. a secret. Yeah. You know, and um, I had to keep it like that, Ralph. Yeah. That's a sign of weakness to people. Right, I understand. So I kept I it like that. But the problem was with me, I'm still on the street. We're still planning a few murders, okay? Which I end up calling off at the end. Still planning two murders. One of my business was still selling drugs, Ralph. Yeah. It, it was very hard. Um, it was 24-7, Ralph. It, yeah. There was no such thing as uh, going home and laying you out on the pillow in peace. Every night you got to worry, uh, your guys got home, who got arrested, you know, the feds and the stable police were really nipping at my heels. They were picking up my crew and the outside associates, like, one at a time. Money guys, big earners. 
they were picking on. And that hurt me financially for a while. I'm not going to lie about that because the, the income's not there. So I knew they were hard on me, hard on my crew. And uh, just dealing with the crew alone with their own problems. Who's arguing with who? Who's fighting with who? I mean, you know. So it, it was very stressful. I handled it well, I think, up to a point, you know. I, I'll tell you, it was tough on my wife and kids. Yeah, Beth always told me, she said, what happened? I married a copper to Bobby. What'd you do? You know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it took a toll on her. Yeah. You know, the way I grew up in the mob, uh, as long as that man paid the bills and yep. got the kids' clothes and everything, we did our job. Right. You know, I love my kids and my wife. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But we this weren't is, there for them. Yeah. So how did that affect you in terms of how you did your business going forward? I didn't really want to sell cocaine anymore. I mean, there was a lot of money with the cocaine to support my crew in the in the city. A lot of these guys, that's all they could do to make money. So there was a conflict inside of me afterwards with the cocaine. But but ultimately, I didn't want to sell it anymore. You know? And you start telling people on your crew this? Yeah, we were going back and forth because uh, Philly had mentioned something with the drugs to me. I came back up because Ronnie Previty now. Joey makes him a couple. As part of the deal Bobby made with Joey Merlino, he had to pay him 10000 in tribute money every month. In early 1999, Joey sent one of his capos, Big Ron Prevetti, up to Boston to talk to Bobby about opening new avenues for making money. Prevetti was a six-foot, 350-pound corrupt cop turned mob captain. He'd been a made man in the Philadelphia mob since 1997. He was also a paid informant for the FBI. Bobby didn't like Prevetti from the get-go, but since he was a captain on Joey's crew, he had to treat him with respect. It was Prevetti who introduced Bobby to a business associate of his named Irish Mike. Irish Mike's real identity was FBI undercover agent Mike McGowan. All right, first time I met him, we were in not Philly. And uh, Joey's uncle's house had a pool, and Joey had a party there. And I was introduced to him, not as a May guy, but I was introduced to him. We talked a little. He now, Bobby, a, let me stop yeah. you there. There's a difference between being introduced to somebody who's just a, hanging out and somebody who's a May guy. How does that work? Well, if I was May when I first met Ronnie, I, they would introduce me to Ronnie and say, Ronnie's a... a Megan Ostra and our family went back and forth. Then they break off and me and Ronnie would get in a conversation. After I did get straightened out, we were all at the Palm. Ronnie was there, the Palm restaurant in Philly. And uh, Ronnie was there. And that's when I got officially introduced to him. And he, Ron is the one who introduced you to Mike. Mike yes, McGowan. He did. Um, who turned out to be the undercover FBI agent. Yeah, George Brigades was the li liaison now between me and Joey. George had a big position in the family. He was liaison. Georgie come to me and said that uh, Ronnie had a guy up in Boston that he did business with for years, and someone's bothering him. I said, okay, tell Ronnie I'll talk to him. I didn't like Ronnie from the day I first met him, not going to lie to you. Didn't like the way he looked, talked. I, I just don't like him. I didn't get a good feeling from him. But he was so, Joey's guy, so you had to deal with him. Afterwards, he, he's a main guy. Yeah, okay. I knew he was made with Stanford. I used to see him on the TV. You know, there was nothing I could do. 
And uh, so I have this meeting. It's up on Milk Street in Boston. And I end up meeting, we call them Irish Mike, Mike McMullen. First time I meet Irish Mike, we were up his office, then we went down to a restaurant. And uh, I guaranteed him, I said, listen, if anybody bothers you, comes near you from now on, just tell them you're with the Luisi family. And believe me, they'll leave you alone. Okay, thank you. Ronnie was there. Everybody shook hands. The meeting was over. As time was progressing, McGowan gave me a Rolex for a gift, tried to get me swag to sell, which I don't sell swag. I didn't even bother with that nonsense. That shot money bullshit to me. He was trying to uh, get me furs, camera, all, all this nonsense. Actually sat down one of the times and said, stop with this. Telling the guys I'll get you this and that. And I'm, I'm over here like on boxes, bringing the stuff back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, then the cocaine kept coming up. I kept telling him, don't talk about that. I don't want to hear it. I'm at a party, Jolene Gamby's uh, son's party in Center City, in Philly. Uh, Ronnie was sitting at my table. Actually, I was giving Ronnie a hard time that night because I didn't like him. Joey, I made him a couple. I said, Ronnie, you met all my guys. Where's your crew? Where are these guys? You're a couple. Well, why got guys? Buzz? Where are these guys, Ronnie? I'm picking on them. All the women, everybody leaves the table. I go back to the table, I get my drink. Ronnie comes up to me, starts talking about cocaine. I said, Ronnie, listen, I'm not in that business. I don't want to hear that again. Don't come and talk to me about that. Then he came back. He said, no, Joey says it's okay. I said, what? Yeah, Joey, something like that. You know, not verbatim. So I go to Joey. He said, Ronnie, just ask me for this thing. Joey threw his hands up and said, we got to make money. And he walked away from me. Well, I knew then that Joey gave Ronnie the green light. So now this is time with McGowan. I keep telling him, stop talking about the drugs. But now they're pressuring me. Your own people are pressuring you. Well, Joey is and you know, Ronnie. And um, I kept telling him I ain't doing it. So when they really started to get into it, I says, yeah, my guy Danny White, which there wasn't a Danny White. I kept palling him off. That's what we call it. I says, yeah, I'll send Danny talk to you. And I would leave it like that. But a few months went by. They're trying to make a deal. Finally, Joey calls me on the phone. Hey, you going to help this guy out? I says, yeah, all right, Joey. I'll, I'll, I'll help him out. And uh, we ended up going down the north end. And Ronnie got me on tape talking about the cocaine. When Joey told me that, that means do it. Now, when Cousin Ostra, he's my boss, bro. The only guy I really got to answer to is Joey. He's Joey my boss. Molino. Yeah. And... And I, I, you know, you know the way we talk. That meant to me on the phone, let's get this done. Because Joey asked me about it a few times when I went down. He never mentioned cocaine. He used to say, the guy with the watch, you know, he gave me the Rolex. Yeah, yeah. You going to help a, him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying, I tell him. I'll him off a little too. And uh, anyway, I finally submitted and I made the deal. FBI Special Agent Mike McGowan posing as Irish Mike, offered to cut Bobby in on the sales of stolen products like mink coats and Kodak film in return for Bobby's protection. Then he offered Bobby an exchange of stolen diamonds for cocaine. Since Bobby had stopped dealing cocaine, he didn't want any part of it. But his boss and sponsor, Joey Merlino, approved the deal. At this point, the pressure on Bobby was growing. 
He was going to church and studying the Bible, and at the same time was trying to run a growing criminal operation. Something had to give. We actually sold them three kilos, and they wanted another four. You're bu- you're buying it from Mike, an undercover FBI agent. Oh, I'm selling it to Mike, and I'm saying to Sean and the guys, because we ha- actually had a sit down talk in Boston of Clip and Ronnie. We knew something was wrong, and we wanted to clip Ronnie. But if I clip Ronnie, he never went back to Philly, and I'm at odds with Joey. Not ready to do that. So Ronnie gets a pass up here, and I end up selling them the drugs. And then how how long after that uh, were you arrested? After the first deal, probably not. I don't remember time, but it couldn't even have been six months. How long did it take you to figure out that uh, Ronnie had set you up, or did you did you figure that out right away? Well, here's, here's what happened. Originally, Irish Mike is supposed to sit with my cousin, Paul. Not even talk to me. He was going to be with Paulie. That was his contact to me. Now that's a buffer. Okay. When the cocaine started, and they're talking about the cocaine, and I knew this was a setup, I had a feeling, I pulled my cousin out of it. Because I... My whole thing was to protect my family, you know, because I had my cousins, blood cousins, were made guys on my crew, and to protect my crew. This is why we were doing this. So other bosses would have just sat back and let them do it. Right, and put it on the cousin. Yeah. Right. So I pulled him back, and I actually stepped in. The first time I stepped in a drug deal for years, and I stepped in because I didn't want my crew to get in trouble. And that's how they got me. On June 27, 1999, Bobby Luisi was arrested by the FBI, along with four other members of his crew, and charged with conspiracy to distribute cocaine. As FBI agents led Bobby away in handcuffs, he had a big smile on his face. He says that he felt as though a huge weight had been lifted off his shoulders. While in custody awaiting trial, Bobby learned that some of his mob rivals in Boston had ratted him out to the feds, accusing him of murdering one of their associates. Facing a charge of murder one, which could have resulted in a life sentence, Bobby agreed to cooperate with the feds and testify against Joey Merlino, who he felt had gotten him involved in this mess in the first place. In order to protect him from some of Joey's associates who were also in prison, Prison officials put Bobby in the hole. There, Bobby faced more demons. Dark figures with horned heads that stared at him through the bars and entered his cell and touched him while he was asleep. And uh, what happened, I'm in prison. I'm in there with a very close friend of mine. And he said, Bobby, did you hear there's indictments coming down? Murder indictments? He said, no, I didn't hear anything about that. He says, you better call your lawyer. So I called Jack, and at that time, Marty Boudreau was an AUSA in the Boston office. He retired from there. He went to work in Jack's firm with Jack. They were associates. He brings Marty down. Marty comes with Jack. He says, Bobby, um, you're not getting out. What do you mean I'm not getting out? He says, you're not getting out. 
He says, there's, uh, you, actually, if you didn't get arrested with Joey and the Philly guys, you again indicted on murder. He says, all your friends are ratting on you. I said, oh, God. So you thought you were <clears> just <throat> in for a, a coke charge and you... Yeah, 10 to 12. 10 to 12. I was pleading out to 10 to 12, Ralph. That's it. Do my time. You know, I wanted to go retire in Florida. No. Now I get hit with this. Yeah, and they're right trying from to pin, the, pin which murders on you. I really don't know. I'll tell you the story. Any particular one. What happens now, Marty says to me, you better talk to him. He says, I ain't talking to no, but I ain't a rat, you know. But I'm in myself for two weeks. My stomach's turning. I, I got an idea who's ratting and what's going on. So I called John down. I said, listen, John, go talk to them. If Marty said this is really serious, I'm not getting out again. And I'm not getting out because I've made guys and these rats ratting on me. I'm not doing this. If I got caught myself with a murder, I got to take my beef. I did it. But these rats, what they did. So now he goes back to them. They want to know the ballistics on three murders. Now I know the murders they're talking about. I gave him the ballistics on that. And then they took me in. So now you're in, you're going to get a, a break on your sentence. Yes. Okay. While you're in prison, what is happening with this spiritual war that's kind of going on inside you? Or have you put this aside? I actually, even with the stress of what was going on, I went gung-ho into the Bible. Because I still had to find out what happened to me, Ralph. That night. I mean, did I crack up? You know, what's going on? Now I have time to actually start studying. The more I study, the more I love it. The more I love God. And guys watching me, what I was doing, they were coming to me, telling me stories about what happened with them with these spiritual things. So I'm starting to teach, trying to counsel them a little. Um, when I do decide to talk, I get called down, and they wanted to make sure I was safe, although no one knew, and they put me in the hole. I'm in a four-man cell. I'm stressing to death. I want this some time alone. Okay. And you're in a cell. I assume while you're in prison, there are other gangsters in there. There are other made men in there with you. Oh, my friends were there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my crew was in there. Right. Yeah. So in a way, you don't know who to trust, right? Because you know somebody. Oh, I didn't, you I didn't trust anybody anymore. Yeah. I'm done with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm done with that. I'm not talking physically because right. I could take care of myself. I'm talking. Yeah. If they bring Who's somebody in, what? or yeah, yeah. So you, you're you're under a lot of pressure, even in prison. Yeah, because now I got the pressure of this on me, Ralph. Now, now I'm facing life. What's going to happen here? Now, one thing I would never do in my life is become a rat. They forced me into this. So they call me down. They said, "What do you want to do?" Because they were going to move me eventually. I said, "All right, put me in the hole if you want." If because they were worried about. For my own protection. Yes and no, but I had to get out of that four-man unit, four-man cell. I was under too much stress. I was ready to snap rough. I figured I'd go down there with my Bible, and I'll read. And that's what I did. While Bobby was in prison awaiting trial, his wife and children were put in the Federal Witness Protection Program and moved to Florida to escape the wrath of the Philadelphia mob. His wife, Beth, started complaining that the FBI agent handling this case was visiting her at their new house in Florida and making suggestive remarks. Bobby reported this to the feds, 
To avoid possible embarrassment, the feds never called Bobby as a witness at Joey Merlino's trial. During his time in prison, Bobby earned a degree in theology and taught GED and Bible courses. He also agreed to tell the FBI what he knew about the 1990 Gardner Museum art heist, which resulted in the theft of 13 works of art valued at half a billion dollars and including masterpieces by Rembrandt, Vermeer, Degas, and Manet. Because of good behavior, Bobby's sentence was reduced from 235 to 188 months. So now this is going on. I'm in a spiritual battle in the prison. I'm also in a a battle for my life now. You know, we're doing life in prison again or whatever. I became a rat, which no one would ever thought I did. I built a family, a crew, you know. But Ralph, what was I supposed to do? Be a pincushion? You know? Because these guys are all ganging up on you. and Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All it's self-preservation, no matter who they are. You know? These guys kill more people than me, and they think they're going to walk out of prison. So once I did that, I stopped it. They all got screwed. So now, um, time's going on. I'm teaching. I'm getting stronger in the lot and all that. Every prison I went in, I ended up teaching. And uh, I ended up in Northampton. That's near Springfield, Massachusetts. A small county prison. It was still privately owned. And I got a laptop. If you were good, you got a TV in the cell, you'd be able to buy. And you could also get a laptop or a typewriter. It was right in the thing. My mother sends me the typewriter, uh, the laptop. I start writing my book. Everything I'm learning is going down on paper. Why well, I'm in a county prison. You believe that? <laughs> when I go to the feds after there, I go to the feds from that prison. I got access to typewriters. I just keep writing, doing my teachings. I taught in every federal prison I was in. I ended up in Arizona. Arizona, I became the um, education teacher there. I was doing my Bible courses. I received my degree there. It was true correspondence, but I graduated with a 3.8 average GPA. And I accumulated 226 credits. And, you know, I did my time. Um, I ended up uh, going to trial, got 20 years. Because I I fought with the government. I really couldn't be a rat, Ralph. So I fought with the government. Six status hearings. They admit they're not going to give me a 5K1. Meaning under the rule 111C, I was able to take my plea back and go on my underlining indictment, which was the cocaine with Mike. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Go to trial on that. Now, they can't get me for the murders or anything. I signed proffers and I couldn't do that. They did try with the judge. They couldn't do it. Now the cocaine, I go, I lose. It's funny, Jory Molino got acquitted of the same charge. I got 20 years. You get the 20 years. I go in, I lose. End up with an appeal. Go back in 2007. Because they had changed the federal guidelines, they had to take 47 months off my off my sentence. They ended up getting 15-8. And I ended up doing 13-8 out of that time. I had lost my good time fighting and everything. Because you still got to be a man in there, you know. 
Well, when I won the appeal, that all went away. Got it all back. Because it's a new thing now. I got out in March of 2013. Okay. And I ended up in uh, Tennessee. Uh-huh. Okay. Under Alonzo Esposito. Uh-huh. The marshals gave me a name. new name, new identity, set me up. And then how did you end up, what, when did you make the decision to return to Boston and and uh, just be who you are under your real name? Well, I had five-year supervised release. And I was like, uh, the marshals love me, the, the um, parole officer, never even got a speeding ticket. I had great jobs down there. When I went down there, I was um, a manager of Sandusky Cabinets. Quality control manager had 70, 70 people under me. You know, I uh, was a supervisor in a construction company. And also, I passed it for a short time at Fake Keepers Ministry in Mumford. So now, I'm getting close. My, my parole's almost over. I talked to my parole officer. I said, I really want to go back to Boston. I'm going to be off in six months. He said, okay, go back up, but I already called Boston for you. This was the second meeting. I called Boston. They said, you get in any trouble, they're picking you right up. If they hear your name roaming around, they're going to pick you up. So, of course, I get back up here. I'm not even here a week, Ralph, and my name's all over the place. I got a job offer in Florida for uh, Johnson Environmental. You know, they do the uh, sores and septic systems, all that. Okay. So I yeah, went sure. down there. I was a supervisor for them. Then my, uh, uh, was over in March. My five years was over in March of 2018. And I came home that September. And I've been home ever since. Bobby Luisi was released from prison in 2014. Given a new name, Alfonso Esposito, put into the Federal Witness Protection Program and relocated to Memphis, Tennessee. There, he started a Christian ministry and landed a job as a quality control officer for Sandusky Cabinets. Two and a half years later, Bobby signed out of the Witness Protection Program and took back his own name. In 2018, he returned to Boston, the city he used to run as a member of Italian organized crime. Now he was a changed man. He had no money and no savings, but was living in the light. He considers his life a cautionary tale and a message of hope for all those who have taken the wrong path. Despite all the evil acts Bobby committed as a mobster, he repented and he believes that God welcomed him back into his grace. We thank Bobby for finding his way out of a life of crime and honestly sharing his experience. He's today's hero behind the headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, and don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind the Headlines.